This week we come to the eighth of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> you shall not steal. I remember the first time I stole something. And uh, I was a kindergartner at West Salem Baptist School, which was as awesome as it sounds. <clears throat> and uh, one day we were doing some sort of craft or art project or something, and the markers that my teacher had in the classroom were like really nice, right? <laughs> And especially the black one, you know that feeling of a really good black marker, which is like a nice, thick, dark line? And I'm thinking, my markers at home suck. <laughs> so I took the black marker and put it in my pocket and took it home. And later that day, after school, I was at home, and I secretly got out my black marker and was coloring with it, and my mom somehow noticed and goes, Where, where'd you get that marker? And I said, from school. And she said, did your teacher give it to you? And I said, not really. <laughs> and she said, how did you get it? And I said, oh, I just took it. And, um, <clears throat> and we, we started talking about it, and uh, the deal that we made is that the next day I was going to bring the marker back to school, take it to my teacher, tell her what I did, and uh, you know, confess my sin. And so that's what I did. And um, it I don't know if you're tracking me. This was a sweet marker, right? <laughs> and I was pretty stoked to have it. But I do remember, um, for the very first time at five, six, whatever I was, um, the first time that I really felt this sense of conviction or the sense of guilt. Like, of course, I'd done naughty things before and said I was sorry. But that act of stealing um, will stand out in my memory for the rest of my life for the first time that I truly felt guilty, right? And what's interesting is that <clears throat> this is kind of part of the reality of a world in which stealing is a thing, okay? So in a world where stealing is a thing, which we'll define a little bit more in a moment, um, instead of being able to trust and enjoy our neighbors, we end up being skeptical of them. In, we, we create a world where instead of focusing on loving one another, we feel the need to protect ourselves from one another. But not only that, not only does stealing create a sense of fear and insecurity within a, a community or a society, but when we ourselves steal, we actually do pay the price with our character. And we begin to lose respect for ourselves. And we begin uh, to really experience this deep conviction that, that not only have I done something wrong, but there is actually something wrong with me. And uh, I've known that now since kindergarten. Um, so the command we come to this morning is four words. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. And if you'll remember, these commands were given as an invitation to the community of Israel as they are learning how to live as free people. After 400 years in slavery, living under this oppressive system run by Pharaoh, they've now been delivered from Egypt into the wilderness, and God is preparing them to enter into the promised land and has given these 10 commandments or these 10 words as a gift to his people to help them learn the ways of freedom. And as we've said, it takes an instant to get a person out of slavery, but it takes a lifetime to get the slavery out of a person. And so this is what God is doing, teaching his people how to live free. <clears throat> 
And one of these commands them, one of these paradigms for flourishing in the kingdom of God is that in God's kingdom, there will be no stealing. In God's kingdom, there will be no stealing. And so just like last week when we talked about adultery, um, I don't want to take a really simple and straightforward command and make it really complex and confusing. Um, This command is very straightforward, right? And we would do well just to start by considering it at face value that God says that in my kingdom where life flourishes and humanity is what it's supposed to be, there will not be stealing. And so you shall not steal. So don't steal. Let's pray. (laughs) Don't rob. Don't thieve. If you're thinking about stealing, don't. If you are currently stealing, stop it. Right? Uh, Don't take what's not yours. Don't cheat on your taxes. Don't steal from your employer by fudging your time card. Don't steal from your employees by not paying them overtime. Don't steal from your customers by overcharging them. If you borrow something from someone, give it back. I'm very bad at this. (laughs) If you owe someone money, pay them back. Stepping back into last week, don't steal another man's wife. Don't steal another woman's husband. Don't keep for yourself what rightly belongs to others. Don't disadvantage others for your gain. We could go on and on with some of the just very straightforward, practical expressions of some of the ways that we're tempted to take what doesn't belong to us and in so doing, not only cultivate a society or a community marked by insecurity and self-protection, but also continue to pile on to the robbing of our own character. And so there's some areas where it's very cut and dry, and I would invite you to consider those in your own life. Um, And then there's some other areas where it's not so cut and dry, or maybe it is, but yeah, technically it's stealing, but it's just not that big of a deal. So let me just ask you some questions. What about sharing your Netflix password with a friend? What about ripping or illegally downloading music or software or movies? What do you do when you realize the restaurant or the store didn't charge you for everything that you took? Or what if we zoomed way out and started to look at the world we live in? I'll be honest, when I first started kind of thinking and studying for this sermon, it was a little bit of a baffling one, especially compared to some of the other commandments, because I'm like, who's pro-stealing, right? Like, I'm not sure who I'm arguing with here (laughs) in this commandment. But when you zoom out, you start to see some things. So in the world of finance and economics, what's just and unjust? What about the fact that in the United States, CEOs earn an average of 241 times that of the workers in their same companies? Or maybe, what if there's a thing called relational theft? or psychological extortion? What if in our relationships we don't give the other person a chance to be heard or understood or valued? What if the Me Too movement is a long overdue recognition of how men have so often stolen dignity from women? Or what about the fact that a pattern of stealing is pretty central to our nation's history? That the United States, as we know it, wouldn't be the nation it is had our forefathers not repeatedly broken the Eighth Commandment. We stole land 
from native peoples. We stole people from Africa and then enslaved those people, stealing their freedom and their labor and their dignity. Now we start to see where this thing goes. This text is intended to make us uncomfortable. And just like Rick said last, or a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about murder, there are some things that have been legal, or currently are legal, but just because they're legal doesn't make them right. And just because something's not illegal doesn't make it uh, wrong. Legality doesn't equal morality. And so for us, the, the, the question or the task for the day is to say, how do we take this vision that God has for human flourishing, a community where stealing is not a thing, and what does that look like for us to live it out as a community of Christ followers living here in Central Oregon, a community that's going to live markedly different than the world around us? And so stealing, I think, in many ways could be considered the fruit that grows on the tree, which has roots in what Walter Brueggemann calls the myth of scarcity. Now, remember, as Israel had been held captive for all those hundreds of years in Egypt, They were living under the rule of Pharaoh who really, at a historic global level, was the first one to uh, say that there is not enough. This was a time of famine, right? A time of global crisis. And in the history of global economics, this Pharaoh guy stands up and goes, there is not enough, and therefore, I need to accumulate all that I can. There's not enough for everyone so I better make sure I have as much as I can for myself. So this myth of scarcity continues to dominate our society today. And most of us haven't experienced literal life in the desert or literal famine, but we know how deep this message goes. This myth of scarcity that there isn't enough, there isn't enough resource, there isn't enough food, there isn't enough money, there isn't enough for everyone to have what they need. So in turn, I'm going to gather all I can for myself. In her book, The Soul of Money, Lynn Twist uh, breaks out uh, this myth of scarcity into three core myths. The first is that there's not enough to go around. The second is that more is better. And the third is that that's just the way it is. Okay, so we'll spend a few minutes on these because I think it's really interesting. I'm going to read some of her thoughts because she's expressed this so well. And I'm (laughs) giving extra attention this morning to make sure I don't steal other people's words without giving credit. So, uh, Lynn Twist and the Soul of Money. This first myth that there is not enough to go around, that somebody's going to be left out. And if there's not enough for everyone, then by taking care of yourself and your own, even at others' expense, though it seems unfortunate, it is unavoidable and somehow valid. So this pervasive belief that there simply isn't enough resource, land, wealth, money in the world for everyone. Secondly, that more is better. 
This myth that the more I have, the better things will be for me. It drives a competitive culture of accumulation, acquisition, and greed. It distracts us from living more mindfully and richly with what we have. We judge others based on what they have, and we miss the immeasurable inner gifts they bring to life. And I love this line. Our drive to enlarge our our net worth turns us away from discovering and deepening our self-worth. So the belief that we need to possess more is the driving force for much of the violence, war, corruption, and exploitation on earth. It's in the campaign to gain, we often pursue our goals at all costs, even at the risk of destroying whole cultures and people. I took a couple of the kids to the sportsman show uh, at the fairgrounds yesterday. Um, You may not know this, I am a redneck at heart. And uh, that was one of those moments where I could just proudly flaunt you can take the boy out of Philomath, but you can't take the Philomath out of the boy is what they say. And uh, I've got an F-150. It's 20 years old. I drive up, and it just, you know, the truck's for miles, right? And uh, we go in, and Mo especially really loves looking at all the trucks and the boats and the RVs and the campers and the dirt bikes and all that kind of stuff. And it's so interesting to be in a place like that and listen to the comments that people make as they walk in and see this amazing, you know, $100,000 boat or whatever and this phrase over and over, oh, man, I need that. Oh, I really need that Jeep. Oh, I just need that dirt bike or, or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, especially in redneck culture, the size of the truck says something. And as we're leaving, um, don't go there. I wasn't going there. <laughs> as we're leaving, we see an F-650 parked in the parking lot. And it has three full rows in the cab. And this an extended bed. And it's like 12 feet tall. And everybody's taking pictures with it and stuff like that. And it's just this sense of more is better. More toys, more guns, more trucks, more tires, more boats. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with all that. And it is fun to look and and that sort of thing. But there's just an assumption that our hearts are going to be drawn towards these kinds of events. And if you're not a redneck like me, you've got your own version of that, right? But uh, we're... The whole thing is designed just to draw out, like, if only I had that. If only I had a bigger one or a faster one or whatever it is. And so this myth in an economy of scarcity is that more is better, and it's so pervasive we don't even recognize it. And then thirdly, that that's just the way it is. There's not enough to go around, more is better, and that's the way life is. That's the way the world is, and there's really nothing we can do about it. And so Twist says that this myth justifies the greed, prejudice, and inaction that scarcity fosters in our relationship with money and the rest of the human race. For generations, it protected the early American slave trade from which the privileged majority built farms, towns, business empires, and family fortunes, many of which still survive today. For generations, it protected and emboldened institutional racism sex discrimination and social and economic discrimination against other ethnic and religious 
minorities. And so she's saying this third myth is almost the most powerful one, that we feel powerless even though when we recognize these systems of inequality and injustice, uh, that we have been the recipients in many ways for those of us that are white-skinned uh, <clears throat> of traveling a road that was paved specifically to advantage people who look like us. And so in our resignation, we abandon our human potential and the possibility of contributing to a thriving, equitable, hospitable society. Okay, so again, these myths are so pervasive, not just in the West, but uh, definitely here, <clears throat> where we have simply bought into the same set of beliefs that God's people were challenged with walking through the desert. This myth of scarcity. Now, Brueggemann would combat that myth with what he calls a litany of abundance, that we no longer would buy into this myth of scarcity, but our eyes would be open to the reality that we have a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And we have to be willing to get rid of this idea that that's just the way it is for a moment and consider the possibility that this isn't just a way that is or isn't, but there is a way in which we choose to act and behave in a way we choose to view our circumstances. And so can we recognize that better comes not from more, but from deepening our experience of what's already there. And rather than growth being external and acquiring and accumulating more money or stuff or wealth, could we redefine growth to see it as a recognition and appreciation of what we already have? So it's a fundamental law of nature that there is enough and it is finite. And its finiteness is no threat. It creates a more accurate relationship that commands respect, reverence, and managing those resources with the knowledge that they are precious and in a way they do the most good for the most people. Okay, and so this is this kingdom vision of stewarding the resources of the earth and whatever it is that God has entrusted to us, our money, our time, our stuff, our abilities, and saying... We're not going to live under this myth of scarcity that we need to hoard and keep for ourselves, but rather we'll live under this litany of abundance that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and he has designed and called his people specifically to live as a light post to the world of what it looks like to be blessed so that we can be a blessing to the world. So back to the idea of stealing then. Listen to what uh, Tim Keller says about one form of stealing called plagiarism. Think about plagiarism for a moment. Why is plagiarism taken so seriously? It's claiming that you came up with an idea yourself when you did not. It's not acknowledging dependence that you got the idea from someone else. Plagiarism is a refusal to give thanks and give credit and is therefore a form of theft. Do you see, then, why God takes this seriously? Cosmic ingratitude is living in the illusion that you are spiritually self-sufficient. It's taking credit for something that was a gift. It's the belief that you know best how to live, 
and that you have the power and ability to keep your life on the right path and protect yourself from danger. That is a delusion, and it's a dangerous one. And so the root of stealing, whether we're talking about that at a global economic level or stealing a marker in kindergarten, both uh, expressions are fruit that grows out of this myth of scarcity and ultimately a lack of acknowledgement that everything we have belongs to God and has been entrusted to us and that he is sufficient to provide for our needs and therefore gratitude and thankfulness have to be the starting point when we consider our money, our stuff, and our possessions as opposed to fear, insecurity, and self-protection. And so at the first level, as God gives these commands through Moses to his people and as we receive them as part of our story as followers of Jesus, there is a prohibition from stealing. Don't buy into the myth of scarcity. Do not try to accumulate wealth or possessions or money at the expense of others, but instead start from a place of receiving all of life as grace and pursue a life marked by gratitude. But I don't think all that God's envisioning for his community is that we would be simply people who discipline ourselves not to steal. That's a really good start, but I think God's vision for his people actually goes further than that. And so when we get into Ephesians chapter 4, which, by the way, Paul's thought as a Jewish scholar turned Christian uh, preacher and evangelist and pastor, um, you find the Ten Commandments all throughout uh, his thinking, but he's kind of reinterpreting them in light of the gospel, in light of who Jesus is. And so we've seen that multiple times, that Paul is taking the commands and going, so as Christ followers, here's what this looks like for us. And so in Ephesians 4.28, he says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. That's basically the eighth command, right? If you're stealing, don't. If you're thinking about stealing, don't do it. But must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And so Paul is continuing on this vision that God has for his people and not just that we would be people who don't steal, but that we would even go further than that. Instead of using our hands for stealing, he says, take those hands that God's given you and use them to love and to care and to bless and to share with those who are in need. What's the opposite of stealing? Giving. What's the opposite of greed? Generosity. So the command isn't just to avoid stealing, but instead it's to become a giving and a generous people who take Jesus seriously when he says it's more blessed to give than to receive. To creatively figure out how we can steward whatever it is that God's entrusted to us, whether that feels like a lot or whether it feels like a little, and say the point of all of this isn't just for my own comfort and my own accumulation, but the point of everything God's given me Every blessing is to be a blesser. 
So there's one other way that I think God talks about stealing, and it's a pretty uncomfortable one for some of us. And it has to do with this idea of what it is that we choose to give to God through the church, right? And if you go back to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, listen to this conversation. It says, ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And so humans are going, how is it possible for us finite created beings to be guilty of robbing from the infinite creator God? Like what, how could we even take his stuff if we wanted to? And God says, you rob from me when you withhold your tithe when you keep that, some of that 10% that I have commanded you to bring to me as your first fruits. Now, we could get into a long conversation about the command of tithing in the Old Testament as that translates to the New Testament. And in fact, we will talk about that more at some point. Um, but I would just start with this observation. That as a pastor for 20 years now, having conversations with people, trying to figure out uh, whether 10% is enough or if it's too much or whatever, um, pretty much every single person I've met who disagrees with the standard of 10%, it's not that they disagree that it's too little. Everybody who disagrees with tithing, it's not that they think, oh, we should actually be giving 25%, right? So our problem with this uh, that I've noticed and wrestled with myself is that it feels too high feels like too high of a number that God would ask for 10% of my income. Um, But what he said to his Old Testament covenant folks is that when you fail to bring me the first fruits of your income, you are robbing from me. Now, I think we're living in a different era of the story, are we not? We're saved by grace through faith, that we don't earn God's favor or right standing with him through any act of righteousness, including giving or tithing or anything like that. Um, I think our picture of God isn't primarily a debtor, but a father, right? And he's, I don't think we primarily think of him as somebody who's trying to collect our debts that we owe him, but as a father who wants to share graciously and generously with all, all he has with all of us. So I think it does reinterpret or reimagine how we think about this. But the question I would ask is on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, have we been shown more grace or less grace than the people of the Old Testament? We've been shown infinitely more grace. How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished it upon us in Christ. And so if we're going to ask, well, should we then be, as recipients of extravagant grace, more generous or less generous than the people of the Old Testament? Then logically, we would be people prone to greater generosity, not lesser. Um, There's a really brilliant 
scholar and writer at Duke Divinity School who I highly recommend her work. She's one of the brightest minds on the planet, in my opinion. Her name's Lauren Winter. And a few years ago, she was asked in an interview, what is her greatest concern about the next generation of the church? What is she most worried about with the future of Christianity in the West? And uh, her answer was shocking to me. Our failure to tithe... I hear all the time, I, I just can't afford to give right now. I hear that from my middle-class American peers. I wonder, if we can't afford to give now, why not? And if we can't afford to give now, when will we be able to give? I know of nothing that will transform someone's spiritual life more abruptly than beginning to tithe. If we want to learn about dependence on God, tithe. If we want to have our treasure in heaven, tithe. If we want to have any hope of having solidarity with the poor, tithe. And so this is partially why, as a church, we are now committed to this practice of tithing. For these outcomes, that we want to experience the blessing of learning to need God, of being dependent upon him to meet our needs. That if we aren't able to pray the line in the Lord's Prayer that says, give us this day our daily bread with any sense of sincerity or desperation, then we're doing it wrong. We want to, quote-unquote, disadvantage ourselves, make ourselves vulnerable through the act of giving and generosity to the point where we actually need God to provide for our daily needs. And we are convinced then that as people called on this mission of justice and this kingdom of compassion, that our hearts need to be changed. And so it's not that God needs us to give our money to him. It's that we do. To be freed from this myth of scarcity and liberated into this litany of abundance. And so I'm not going to go super technical and legal and saying everybody has to tithe or else you're robbing from God. He's your father. He loves you. He wants to share with you and care for you and provide your needs and then encourage you to use those whatever means you have to bless his work and to bless his world. But I will say that I think a tithe is a great place to start when it comes to asking how is God asking me to steward what he's entrusted to me as a loving father. And so there's benefits to tithing, but ultimately we're called to this life of generosity in general. And the reason why is because that's what God is like. Last passage, Philippians chapter 2, this famous uh, song or hymn that the early church composed and sang together. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his interests, but to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, the mind of Christ that is in us, who though he was in the form of God, did not, cons- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men. Wonderful rich pastors that we could pull so much out of. Throw back up real quick. When Paul says that Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, people have misinterpreted that as saying that Jesus wasn't equal with God. It was something he tried for or tried to attain to but could never quite achieve. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying Jesus has and always has had equality with God, but he didn't consider that equality, that power, that privilege, and that position something to be grasped, something to be hoarded, something to be kept for himself or used for his own advantage. Instead, he empties himself. He takes the power that he has as equal with God and he gives it away. And so the picture that we have of God in the face of Jesus is that Jesus isn't a grasper. He's a giver. God is not primarily a taker. He's a blesser. And I think that truth has to penetrate our hearts before we're ever going to be liberated into this litany of abundance. That sometimes, and especially when you hear a guy like me up here telling you you're supposed to tithe, we begin to reinforce these pictures that we have that God is always asking for more. God is always demanding more. God is always expecting more, and he won't be happy until I'm giving him more and more and more of my money, of my heart, of my devotion, of my worship, of my purity, of my stuff. Like, God's always asking me for so much. Every time I come to him in scripture, every time I pray, every time I go to church, it's like God wants more and more of me. When the reality is that in Christ we see a God who's not primarily a taker, but he's a giver. Who wants to give you more and more of himself. Fill more and more of your life with his life. Who wants to pour his love into your heart in such a way that causes you to become a whole new person. That God is a giver. God is a giver. God is a giver, and the only reason he would ever ask for anything from you is to create room for more of his life within you so that you can become more human, so that you can become more full of joy and that your life will grow in meaning and in mission and in the fullness of the one whose love you were made for. And so as we come to the table this morning, as I say on a regular basis, don't take communion. Receive it. You don't have to pry grace out of God's clenched fists. He's a giver. And his life is open to you this morning to come and to receive. Will you stand with me? Generous Father, we are so grateful for the life that you've given us in your Son, for the gift of your Spirit, and for every day and everything in it. And we stand here this morning and recognize it, all of it is grace. All of it is grace. And we thank you that you have liberated us.
from our sin, from our self-destruction. And you have brought us on a journey into the holy land of your, your very life. And so I pray, God, that you would save us from ourselves. That you would save us from the grip of greed, the traps of consumerism, the myth of scarcity. And instead, you would transform our hearts in light of your gospel in such a way that would cause us to be a community known for radical generosity. A community known not for hoarding or grasping or taking or stealing, but a community known for giving and loving and serving and caring, especially those who are in need. So I thank you for the glimpses we see in our own community here, and we pray that it would continue. Pray that by your spirit, you would convict us of our selfishness, of our greed, of our sin, and that you would inspire us to be a community that reflects your grace and your compassion, your generosity, and your justice to this world. In the name of Jesus.